welcome to Cardiff University Politics Society's Meet Your Lecturers podcast series. This is our second instalment and I am Georgia Keane, the President of the Society for 2020-2021 and I'm joined today by Dr Jennifer Allen, a lecturer in international relations at Cardiff University. Jen specialises in global environmental politics, with recent work focusing on the politics of sustainable post-COVID recoveries, including green stimulus packages in the UK and the emergence of the green recovery norm globally. So good morning, Jen. How are you? Oh, well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good. Thank you. Um, so if we get straight into it, uh, would you like to tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, what brought you to Cardiff? Sure. Uh, so... I'm Canadian, so sorry if anything doesn't make sense that I say. Uh, And yeah, I came to Cardiff January 2019 um, for a few reasons. Uh, I really liked the idea of living in a city this size with lots of green space. Um, I really liked the opportunity to teach a whole bunch of students that seemed very interested in environmental politics. Like that the NSS study shows that you know, 66% of students in this country think climate change is really important. So it's very exciting for someone in the field to teach. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know what else to say. I mean, I hang out, I run, I jump. No, that's, no, that's, that's cool. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your educational journey? So sort of what led you towards environmental research and teaching and stuff like that? Sure. Uh, so I grew up in rural northern Canada. Uh, It's a town called Prince George, and the town is based on forestry. Like, that is the main industry in that city. And, you know, my family works in forestry, uh, or they work in industries kind of adjacent to forestry, or mining is also really big. So, like, my brothers would work on big equipment in the mines. And whenever the price of coal or trees would fall, people were out of jobs or when a pine beetle infestation went through my province and massive job losses. And so it was kind of also at the time when like environmental issues were rising, like we cared less about security and more about other things. And so that kind of really piqued my interest. And I did my undergraduate degree at the university in my hometown in Prince George. And it was pretty new. I was the 10th graduating class ever at that university. Yeah. So it's really new. Like as a kid, I remember seeing it being built. And so it was great. Like otherwise, if that university didn't exist for me, getting an education would have been really difficult Yeah, because it would have meant moving, you know, 900 kilometers away to like a town where also it's a big city and it's really scary and really expensive. So yeah, that was definitely helpful for my undergraduate. And then master's degree was in a city called Guelph, uh, Ontario, which is kind of near Toronto. Um, And there I looked more at uh, issues around development and how environment and development goes together. And it was really interesting to see that it's kind of the same, like the price of coffee drops and people lose their jobs. Yeah. And so just to see how reliant we are on commodities and therefore on environmental sustainability of those commodities and, you know, supply chains was really interesting. Um, Then I left academia. I went and worked in Bangkok 
uh, with a conservation organization called the World Conservation Organization or International Union for the Conservation of Nature um, and did a forest project there uh, and got to live in a national park for a while with a first with a, a Paganyak community, so a, a ethnic minority community up north. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't speak any of their language. How was that experience? Was that like, you know, life changing or, you know, it must have been pretty intense. It's amazing. Like you realize um, so much that we don't even pay attention to here. Like there was one electricity line. And I realized like I could actually hear electricity, which is a sound I'd never noticed I was listening to all the time. And just, yeah, that you eat what you get that day, especially what was interesting was how the community works together. Mm-hmm. So it was the rice harvesting season when I was there. And I really wanted to go help harvest rice, but I'm crap at it. So my job was to take care of the kids. Because <laughs> that way, you know, the useful people could actually go out and do things. Um, yeah, which fair enough. Um, yeah, so it's, I mean, it's just such a community uh thinking around how to make sure that everyone can eat, everyone has crops to sell, um, they help those that need them. But at the same time, like you can still see hierarchies, like some people are living in bamboo huts, some people have cement houses. Um, so even in a small village of, there were 150 people at the time, mm-hmm. um, you can see sort of Almost class, like not really class, but you can definitely see like differences in status for sure. So yeah, that was pretty fun. And I came back and I switched from forest to air. So I worked in uh, Canada for an organization called the Clean Air Strategic Alliance. I seem to have a thing of working with organizations with huge names. <laughs> yeah. um, and what we did was we brought together government and NGOs and industry. Okay. to talk about an air quality issue in the province. And then they had to all agree by consensus to what the new policies and rules should be. So getting them all to agree was a bit fun. That was my job. And sometimes it worked well. And sometimes it was just really too complicated. And so it was interesting to see just how much you could kind of get them to agree to. So they yeah. could agree to rules around coal-fired plants and how much they're allowed to emit, like all the way down to like a schedule of reducing by how much every year. But then like agriculture was really hard. So it's about like land and livelihoods and industrialized farmers versus small-scale farmers. And there's just so much going on. So that was really difficult. Then I came back and did my PhD at UBC in Vancouver. Thought I was going to do it on forests, but realized there's not much happening in forests. <laughs> Um, yep so then I ended up doing climate change so yeah I only came to climate in like 2010 um that's been a bit more of a recent thing for you yeah yeah and uh then I started doing some work with something called the earth negotiations bulletin again by the international institute of sustainable development big names lots of big names big names it seems to be a thing yeah um And so with them, I go to global negotiations. So when I think I was at almost every negotiation for the Paris Agreement from 2012 to 2015, I think I missed one. 
I was at the negotiations for the new plastics rules under the Basel Convention, um, rules about like chemicals, how they can be produced and used and traded. Uh, so yeah, I get to sit in with negotiators while they're arguing over like big issues, like what should, how can we make a new market for carbon and trade it? And sometimes annoyingly, like when they're fighting over a comma, which really... I was going to say, I mean, some of those issues must be really, really big and really interesting, but then I imagine there must be a lot of sort of mundane, boring stuff that goes on then as well. I mean, from your perspective, obviously, you've been to so many of the different conferences and conventions. Uh, Can you tell us a bit more about what it's like actually being there? Yeah, I mean, I kind of have unique status because I have a secretariat badge, which gets me into a lot of things, which means I can be a bit cheeky sometimes. But I mean, it's... It's its own world in that there's all sorts of like different ways of interacting that are just specific to it. So kind of like when you first come to university and you're learning how to like interact with lecturers and other students and like you realize stuff you did at home maybe isn't cool here. It's the same at the UN where it's like you always have to say Mr. and Madam President and Chair. Uh, Certain speakers uh, go in a certain order. So G77 is always first. And we'll all just sit and wait until they come. That sometimes making people negotiate all night is a strategy from some countries. So it's a tactic, which makes me extremely cranky. I bet. Like, I don't need to be caught up in your nonsense. Come on. And even just seeing like how even issues that seem so small... So, for example, they still can't agree on a website where all of their pledges will be posted. So they have to have a new kind of website for the pledges that will be coming in after 2020. There's just sort of a provisional one now. And they spent years and they still haven't fully adopted this stupid thing about whether we need one portal or two portals or should it be one website or two websites? Should we have keyword searchability and it's just like infuriating when you think like climate change is happening and we kind of need like why are we fighting about a website yeah but then you realize like it's about like principles and if they give on the website issue because it relates to a principle about Mm -hmm. how adaptation or reporting should work then that has a chain reaction to all these other big issues that they can't give on so just seeing that how there's like dozens of negotiations going on at the same time, like in parallel, mm-hmm. but they're the negotiators are coordinating across them to make sure like nothing can adversely affect one another. So it's like, it's just such a crazy orchestration to see. Yeah, I bet. That is, that is really interesting that there's all those kind of parallels going on at once. Um, I guess that kind of feeds into another question of mine, which is sort of like of all the sort of work you've done or the work you're currently doing, can you tell us a bit about what you find either the most challenging, but also the kind of most rewarding and the most enjoyable? So challenging, I mean, I think challenging would be going to these meetings sometimes and just nothing happens. Yeah. Like that just, it hurts your heart. You know, just like all the world leaders or, you know, ministers and Antonio Gutierrez and so many important people are there. And it's like, why couldn't we agree to just a simple statement that said, 
you know, we strongly encourage all countries to bring better pledges in 2020. They couldn't even agree to that sentence, even though they already agreed to it in 2015. And so like that just, it just gets you, you know, it just really hurts my heart when that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, because you realize like sometimes it really is just a game at one level. Yeah. Um, and then what I find rewarding is when I get to either in my work or especially teaching, because I mean, you'll know this, uh, you know, we try to talk about like what's going right and what are solutions that people are doing. And, you know, let's bring cool examples of like work that's out there in the world that's making it better. And that just, I mean, that helps because then it's like, you know, we can do this, like, especially at local scales, like we can totally do this. We just need to, you know, ignore all the game playing stuff. No, I think, I mean, from being taught by you and stuff, I I definitely agree. It is really reassuring to hear some sort of positive examples and examples that don't, because from a global perspective, it can often seem sort of dire and you get all these examples in the media where we're just all doom and gloom and everything's going to go bad. But actually, when you can take a step back and look from a different perspective, it is really encouraging sometimes. So that I think that is that is really nice. Um, Going back a bit, what you said about there being loads of interesting people uh, at some of those events. Um, if you had to name the most interesting political figure um, you've met, uh, who would it be and why? I've been in the same room as David Attenborough. That's so cool. Sorry, Sir David Attenborough. <laughs> um, I mean, I was like one of 1,500 people probably in that room and I could barely see him. It's still impressive. It's still impressive. But the voice... Like it just sends like shivers up your spine. I had like a 10 second conversation with Ban Ki-moon. Oh, wow. Yeah. Complete by accident. I was just like walking up this big hallway, kind of looking around and realizing like everyone around me is male, large and wearing a black suit. That's weird. And then I look around again, like to my left and then realize like, Oh, that's Ban Ki-moon. That's a security detail. And he's right beside me. And I was like, oh, hello, sir. And uh, yeah, she goes, oh, hi. Yep. Oh, you're one of us because I had a secretariat badge. I said, oh, yes, I'm part of the reporting team. And he goes, oh, it's wonderful. Thank you so much. Have a good day. And he just kind of, you know, walked along and just totally, you know, smooth. Meanwhile, like a year before in Paris in 2015, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's security detail like slammed me into a wall. I was like, you know, if you think about Ban Ki-moon and Arnie, come on, Arnie would be fine. (laughs) Like, even if I was dangerous. I'm not sure if you're going to pose too much of a threat to Arnold Schwarzenegger, but you never know. No, his security people were. Yeah, they were on it. Yeah. Segwaying slightly away from some of that stuff. Um, we've all been uh, learning to cope with sort of, you know, life online and stuff like that with COVID and everything. Um, how did you cope with lockdown? And do you have any tips for listeners um, that helped you along the way? Oh, man. Yeah. So I live alone. So I definitely feel for like everybody else that lives alone. And my family's all nine hours time difference. So yeah, uh, that limits like the window of chatting. Um, So what worked for me was trying to keep a bit of a routine because otherwise, like I would just sleep too much or stay up too much. Or then I wouldn't do any work on, say, Tuesday and then I'd feel guilty and start working on Saturday. (laughs) 
So like trying to keep a routine was good. Um, and a big part of that was like stopping work. Like I stop work at this time and then it goes away. Like the computer disappears. I do anything else. Making time for like getting out every day and just walking or running or uh, I've been working on pull-ups. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I have a pull-up bar. That's been my little project. So I can do, I can do two. That's very yeah. impressive. That's Yeah. That's cool. Just things like that, like just kind of stuff to kind of keep, like something so that there's, you know, something other than the daily grind, I guess. It's been really helpful. We're going to end with some quick fire questions, if that's okay. Oh, I'm going to give you two options and you don't think, just answer. If oh, that's okay, we've only got a few. Okay, so summer or winter? Winter. I mean, especially late Canadian winter. Okay. Not this winter. Yeah, we, we do winter a bit pathetically over here, I'm afraid. Yeah, minus 20 in snow. Oh, so good. Ketchup or mayo? Ketchup. Cardiff or Swansea? Cardiff. You shouldn't have had to think about that for so long. Um, <laughs> um Wales or Canada? Oh, that's not nice. Um, okay, I'm going to say Wales. I actually really appreciate Wales during lockdown. Okay, probably a um, a sensible answer for this, but yes, Boris or Trump? Also, not fair. Um, Boris. Yeah, I'm sorry. It was it was the better of two evils for that one. Yeah, like we'll go for sanity. Chocolate or cheese? Chocolate. Nice answer. Nice answer. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure.